What's up and welcome back. I'm your host, Lauren, and this is the Purpose of Movement podcast. We are moving right along onto the second episode in the new formatting of the podcast. If you haven't checked out the first episode, it's entitled 201, The Cultural Misinterpretations of Fitness and Wellness. I suggest you start there just so you can get a very good base foundation of what I'm going to be discussing, what I'm going to be talking about, and it's good that we're all on the same page, right? Right. Today's topic, the body, the mind, and your experience, I would say is something I'm most interested in in this moment. I'm so freaking interested in knowing how our minds and our emotions and our bodies impact our experience of life. At this very moment in my journey, I feel that what I'm going after, where I'm setting my sights at, goal-wise, is so much so informed by this new understanding I have of how our life is actually lived. That is through their internal experience of our life and that interpretation. Really how we see our life, like how we see the events in our life, how we feel about them, what we think about them. And how much that has to do with whether or not we are enjoying what's going on with us. Two books that significantly made an impact on me being able to understand this concept were A New Earth and The Power of Now, both by Eckhart Tolle. Or Tolle? Someone tell me how to say his name. One of Eckhart's most famous concepts is, you are not your mind. That's a direct quote from him. Another quote that really brings this to life is the most decisive event in your life is when you discover you are not your thoughts or emotions. Instead, you can be present as the awareness behind the thoughts and emotions. A more simple quote from him would be, you are not the voice in your mind, but the one who is aware of it. So essentially what he's saying here is that you are the observer. Your thoughts are not you, that voice that thinks your thoughts isn't you. You are the consciousness that is aware that there are thoughts being had, that there are emotions being felt, that there are things going on in your life. And understanding this concept is so important for what we're about to talk about because if you're able to separate yourself from the thoughts that you have and understand that what you think isn't who you are, it's just what's going on in your brain and you're actually just observing it like you would observe the behavior of someone else, a different person than you. When we give ourselves that space, when we create that distance between our minds and ourselves, our emotions and ourselves, our body and ourselves, we're able to depersonalize our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, and objectively look at what's going on and make sure that what's going on is for our highest good as a collective, right? Like in our little pod, we have our mind, our thoughts, our body, our emotions. And we want to make sure that we are functioning in the most efficient way possible that allows us to enjoy our experience here. But if you're constantly having negative repetitive thoughts or if you're constantly repressing past emotions or constantly having to use coping mechanisms because you have things that went on that you hadn't dealt with, 
we're not really experiencing our potential. So let's start with our thoughts. Let's start with our mind. Personally, I found it helpful to think about my mind as a narration. Now, I don't know if you feel this way, but I notice that my narration has a mood. And it feels to me that my mood is impacted by my narration's mood. Like it feels like that voice in my head, my thinking mind, really jumpstarts my personal mood. There have been times where my thoughts, my thinking mind was in a really negative place, but I was able to pull myself out and I didn't succumb to that negative mood and vice versa. I've been in a really positive mindset space and still been like, nope, I'm grumpy, I'm mean, I'm whatever in that moment. But more often than not, in my experience, however those thoughts are, it's almost like a shade, like a coloring. Like if we're happy that day, everything's golden. And anything that happens, you know what, we can handle it. It's okay. And my actions reflect that interpretation of what's going on of my life. But if I'm in a more negative space in that narration and like, oh, well, look at this, just another thing. Look what's happening. Of course, me, like, of course today, what else can go wrong? Then (laughs) it's much more seamless to just fall into that external mood, to be acting out that way of being. Something that I'm pointing out here that isn't so obvious, so I want to talk about it and name it, is that I'm suggesting that we have space between how we think and how we feel and how we decide to act. Now, if the space was physical, we're talking like millimeters. We are in, it's so tiny. It's not like, hmm, oh, wow, how should I respond to this? It seems more like one, two to me. But I think that this is where mindfulness techniques and meditation come in to help you create more space between reaction and response. To me, reaction is something that happens instantly, almost no space is there. And response, it's like a pause. It's okay, this is what's going on. I am choosing how to respond versus I'm just reacting. Whatever happens, happens. We'll come back to this concept a little bit later on in the podcast when we talk about how to actionably work on these things in yourself, but I just wanted to mention that so it's front of mind. Now, something I find so interesting about the thinking mind is that 90% of our thoughts are repeated from yesterday or from however many years ago when you've been in this mindset. And another thing that I've come to know through research and personal experience is that the way your thoughts are, the nature of your thoughts, informs how you see the world, right? That's a pretty obvious concept. But if we think about the idea that we are actually in control of how we see the world, We have control over this thing that feels so concrete, so permanent, so fundamental to who we are. Like how you see everything occurs and you're learning that when you're so young. It's very formative. 
has to do with your subconscious mind. It's from about two to 14 years of age when you start to pick up your perception of what's going on. You create these rules in your mind of like, oh, if this occurs, then that occurs. But if we're able to look at other people to help us understand ourselves, we can see that your friend or your brother or sister or your parents especially, and this is probably an obvious one, they have a different concept of how the world works that's informed by their personal experience. But what I'm suggesting here is that our concept of the world, this is like huge, our concept of the world is malleable. We can change it. It's not easy. It's not obvious. It seems impossible because it's how we've learned to survive. It's almost like me sitting here and telling you, hey, like, no, actually gravity's not real. You can fly. Now, I'm definitely not telling you that, but you also have concepts that are that ingrained in your mind that aren't necessarily always true. The gravity thing, it's definitely true. Do not try to fly. But a lot of the things, a lot of the conclusions we came to when we were younger were based on events that weren't the rule. And that to me is what's so interesting about trauma is that it doesn't have to be so traumatic. It could just be you happen to, as a five-year-old, take a lesson from a situation that occurred to you and you just never learned that it could be a different way, that it's not necessarily always that way 100% of the time. Also, if you're thinking while I'm talking about this that these rules are very close-minded, yeah, you're right, they are. They're, they're not allowing space for growth. They're not allowing space for evolution. They're not allowing your 14-year-old brain to keep progressing. If I objectively asked you, hey, you get a choice. Do you want your brain to be the brain you had when you were 14? Or do you want it to be the brain you have today that you're going to carry out throughout the rest of your life? I'm pretty sure you would not choose your 14-year-old brain. And the reason for that is because you've learned so much since you were 14. And informationally, I have to agree with that. But if you, like me, have been experiencing very similar situations, very similar emotional reactions to things since you were super young, then I also have to say you're probably still carrying a lot of the ideas and concepts that are super deep, subconscious mind, that you developed while your subconscious mind was developing. And I think if you haven't had experiences that showed you any different, then you're going to continue to believe in those concepts you learned a long time ago that aren't necessarily serving you. A lot of times also these concepts aren't actually our own. They're lessons from parents, society, authority figures that we picked up that don't really match how we think personally. Now, how would you know this? How would you know that this is happening? It's so difficult to see in yourself. For me, I found 
one of the only ways I started to recognize this and to see this was in therapy, specifically group therapy. I was in group therapy for a while and it was so obvious to me that I had ideas about the world. I had rules for how the world worked that other people didn't share because in group, a situation would occur, an emotional reaction would occur on my behalf, let's say, and then the group, it's not just a one-on-one therapist where the therapist is talking you through. The group would be like, hey, like, why would you say that? Why would you think that? Or what do you think I meant by that? And I would tell them like, oh, well, this is the way it works. And let me tell you, so many of the times that occurred, I was floored to learn that not everyone thought about things that way. And from there, we have the potential to attempt to go back if it's possible, if it's not too traumatic for us, to go back and understand what situation caused us to come to this conclusion about the world that's not serving us, that's not necessarily true all the time, so that we're able to deconstruct that in our minds and take a new lesson. It's not something that happens instantaneously when you're like, oh, well, it's because this situation occurred and I thought this was the reason, but actually it's not necessarily true. So now I'm healed. Healing is complicated. It's a journey. It's not instant. It's also not information or thought-based. It's physical because when we have emotions that we haven't dealt with, I believe that we store that in our physical bodies. I believe that an emotion is energy and if we don't allow ourselves to feel the full extent of the emotion, if we don't allow that energy to pass through us, then we keep it and we have to put it somewhere. And I believe energy is a real thing. I believe it's matter, like physical matter. We can't see it, but I believe it's there. And if we have to put it somewhere inside of ourselves, it's going to be held in the body. Now, I've gotten this concept from the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And this concept has been confirmed for me through personal experience. What we're talking about when we talk about emotions held in the body is about the nervous system. When a traumatic or stressful experience is occurring, our body is put into fight or flight mode. And depending on the situation, we are going to react. In fight or flight, it's a very reactive state. We're going to be reacting based on our capacity to manage, to deal with, to even experience what's happening. Here's a quote. People have a range of capacities to deal with overwhelming experience. Some people, some kids particularly, are able to disappear into a fantasy world, to disassociate, to pretend like it isn't happening, and are able to go on with their lives. And sometimes it comes back to haunt them. This quote is from the author of The Body Keeps the Score. And I think it illustrates that there are times in lives, and this doesn't necessarily happen to everyone, but I think it's a very common occurrence that 
situations occur that we do not feel capable of handling or managing or responding to. So we just shut down. We don't let the emotions occur because for whatever reason, we cannot handle it. And then you're left to ask, well, where does that energy go? Does it just disappear? I believe it is held in the body. Now, this often creates a situation in which our bodies, our nervous system physically is reverse alerting our brains that there's danger when there isn't danger because there's trauma and negative emotion, unprocessed emotion held, and we're not quite sure because we haven't processed it where the danger is coming from. So things that aren't necessarily dangerous feel dangerous or are perceived as dangerous. And here's where our thinking mind can come into this process and start to narrate what's happening, telling you, and sometimes that narration isn't necessarily what's happening. It's your mind and body's perception of what's happening based on what has happened in the past. For me personally, this shows up as suspicion of situations. This shows up as, for me, a lot of issues having to do with trust, trusting others, trusting myself. It's messy for me, and I'm still very much so in this. I'm still very much so working on this, but what has helped me to get to the place where I am with it is the understanding of what occurred that caused me to form these ideas. And right now I'm in a place of having to work against my body, work against my nervous system, my emotional reactions, and my thoughts to form different and new ideas about the world. And by no means is this not a messy process. It's extremely messy. And the messiness for me personally is one of the most difficult things to deal with. Part of my response, part of my, I would even say coping with the concepts of the world that I have and have had that do not serve me is that I believe in order to be worthy, I need to be perfect. And being messy is like the antithesis of being perfect. Being messy is so stressful to me in itself. And so for me, when I'm healing these things, it's extra difficult to deal with admitting my humanness in messing up, in making mistakes, in acting out of a place that I don't or no longer associate my current self with. I think the most difficult part of healing is to heal and to go through your healing process in relation to others because it's not always going to feel like a fun place for other people to be. One thing that makes it especially challenging is when the person going through the healing, going through it, doesn't know how to articulate that to other people, doesn't know how to explain what's happening to other people. And this is often because when you're going through that, you don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on. 
And so you couldn't even understand it yourself. It's not going to be possible to explain that to someone else because I've experienced so much of this in my life and so many relationships that I've had have gone through this process. I've come to learn and I currently believe that people are not inherently bad or not inherently trying to hurt you. They're often just looking out for their best interest and if they have things that have happened to them causing them to act in a certain way that negatively impacts you, it's not personal. It's not on purpose. It's not something that they intended to do sometimes. It's not something that they want to be doing. So going through that has made me so much less judgmental of others' behaviors and others' actions because I know where my heart is and I know how I've acted. And a lot of times through the healing process, those two don't align. Now, what I'm not saying here is that if someone isn't treating you well, if you're on the receiving end of someone's healing journey that is really negatively impacting you, that you need to stick around because they're hurt. I think it's absolutely fine to distance yourself or to end a relationship if it's not benefiting you, if it doesn't make you feel good, if it's not what it used to be, if it's not what you want your friendships or your relationship to look like. This isn't advice. This isn't what I'm saying you should do. This is my personal opinion and how I've dealt with it in my life. But being someone on the receiving end of that multiple times, I would say if this is something that you're planning to do with someone in your life, having a conversation, if you're able to, is a very kind thing to do. And I'm not saying that the person that's going through it is necessarily going to understand you or isn't going to be angry or sad or have a negative response or reaction, but if you're able to communicate with them, maybe someday they'll come around and realize that you were just protecting yourself because you had to versus, oh, well, wow, look at this. It's just another reinforcing instance in my trauma. No one likes me. No one likes to be around me. What else is new? And you really don't know what the other person's internal monologue or internal thought repetition situation really is, even if you know them, because they're not just sitting there telling you their thoughts. It's going through a filter of how they decide they have to be in the world. And when that filter is super negative because something has happened that they haven't dealt with, that they're holding on to, a lot of times they will behave in like a beyond amazing way because that's what their conditioning has taught them they had to do. But yeah, it can get really messy. But the upside of healing is that once you go through the work of healing and restoring your ability to be clear and to be neutral and to see the world in a positive way, you truly have the ability to restore or to create new relationships that feel good, that stop this repetitive 
negative cycle of how things go or how they've always gone. The way I look at it is we have these interactions, we have these relationships, we have these experiences with people because we're supposed to learn and grow from them. And not every relationship is going to last a lifetime. Not every experience is going to be positive. But I believe, and this is personal belief, that life is always working for you and always attempting to help you grow. You might be thinking, okay, but what about this absolutely horrible thing that happened to me that shouldn't ever happen to anyone that's helping me grow? And I can't explain those things. I don't know. No one knows why things like that happen to people, to anyone. But what I know from personal experience and what we've seen in others and what we see as a society is that the people that are able to overcome the things that have happened to them, that are able to go back and in this now time process the emotions that were previously too overwhelming to handle in the moment when they happened, are the people that are the strongest, are the people that are the most inspiring, are the people that are the most caring and understanding and incredible. And the depth that occurs with that work is something that everyone can recognize, that authenticity, that realness, that genuine energy that we can just feel and tell as humans when another human has gone through something and overcome it and grown from it. Like there is growth potential in everything. And while I can't sit here and give you a reason or explain why certain things happen to certain people, I do know that if you're able to work through what has happened to you, there is a potential for you to grow from it. One of the most constant and consistent goals that we can have for ourselves is continuous evolution, continuous growth. And that can be super general and that can be in so many forms and in so many different shapes and sizes. But if we're constantly looking to always be growing, to always be evolving, then we're putting ourselves on a path. And the direction that we are deciding to walk in is one where healing can occur and one where we can feel fulfilled. So if you decide to walk that path and you decide to go that way with yourself, it doesn't matter when you start, it doesn't matter where you start, but there are a couple things that I would keep in mind. Things that I go through, a process that I use when I'm working on myself, when I'm working on healing specifically past unprocessed emotions. I've outlined this into five different steps, and I'm going to break it down for you here. So first and most importantly is to develop an awareness of what's going on. Now, it's not necessary in my experience to be aware of exactly where the issue occurred, exactly what the trauma was that caused the problem. What's more important is to understand what the problem is in the moment to really go and find the pattern in your life. Find the areas where you constantly keep struggling. You continuously have an issue and 
find how it relates in itself. Discover what about it doesn't work for you and what doesn't feel functional and what is clashing with yourself, with your mood, with your emotions, with your thoughts, or with other people. You might also hear identify how you have always decided to cope with it or how you defend yourself from it, how you don't take responsibility for it. Those things might also come up here. And what's so interesting about this piece is that a lot of times when we have negative emotions about something, they can come out in an aggressive way. Personally, when I'm hurt, when I'm sad, I react aggressively. I react with anger. And so part of my healing is always to distill the anger until I can get to my sadness and I can identify what caused the sadness, what I feel like I'm missing, what I feel like I'm not asking for, what I feel like I'm not receiving, what I feel like I'm creating or reliving that isn't working for me or functioning in a way that feels good to me. And that is exactly where step number two comes in, where you're going to identify the negative emotions that you have attached to these situations, like the actual hurt that you have avoided or were not capable of in the moment of healing, of feeling, of letting go. So this is where you get to the core issue, and usually it's a deficiency of some sort of assurance, reassurance, self-worth, confidence, love, and it's necessary to not only sit with the discomfort, but to allow these emotions that have been stuck, that have not been processed, to come up, to be felt in order for the stuck emotion to clear, to move on, to be free, you need to let the energy go somewhere. And the best way that I found to do this is to just let it flow through you openly. Something I believe I learned in therapy and I've confirmed it with research is that an emotion only has a shelf life of 90 seconds. Up to 90 seconds is how long you are going to have to sit in discomfort maximum at a time. Hearing that and understanding that made this entire process more manageable for me when I first learned about this. So hopefully you feel the same way if you feel that you're unable to sit with yourself. Maybe these emotions come up when you're trying to meditate. Maybe they come up right before you go to sleep. Maybe they come up when you're in a certain environment or with a certain person or people or it could be anything. But if you understand that once you're in a safe space and you feel ready to experience the emotion that has been pushed aside, the maximum intensity is going to be a minute and a half. It becomes a more manageable thing to tackle. And this is not to say that all emotion will be out in a minute and a half in one sitting. This will be case by case. But if you have the knowledge, the understanding that 90 seconds, this one time, can I, can I do that? Am I able to do that for myself? If the answer is yes, I think it's a manageable thing to sit with. 
Now, going along with this, step number three for me is allow yourself to be helped. So there are certain things, there are certain emotions, certain situations that we should go through with ourselves, with another person, with another strategy, with some sort of plan, with help. And you'll know if you can't manage it on your own, there's so many different options out there for how you can potentially deal with what's going on and how you can best allow yourself the space and the time and the resources to heal. Therapy is probably one of the first things that comes to mind when I mention this, and that's definitely an option. I already mentioned that I had participated in group therapy. That can be very helpful. I have also done EMDR therapy, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. This form of therapy works very closely with the nervous system to help the brain to essentially relieve some of the pressure caused by the trauma from an event in the past. It is a somatic healing technique, and there are others similar to this, but I've personally tried this and had a lot of success dealing with some things that I felt very stuck on, that I felt that I intellectually understood but couldn't get past. I had a lot of success with this. Another technique you could try is hypnosis, self-hypnosis, or a therapist. And if you're looking for a way that you're able to help yourself, journaling can be a resource that you can use to help yourself process and understand what's happening. Step number four is to regulate the nervous system. Now, if you're going through this healing process, you're bringing up things that really charge the nervous system, that is interconnected, that happens without your control, right? It's automatic. But we have ways that we can reverse engineer the nervous system. If you know me, you know this is one of my favorite topics, period. But before that, let's just talk about some general well-being guidelines that you should be following. It's important that you're taking really good care of yourself while you're attempting to work through these things. And that means that you're getting adequate rest, you're moving the body, you're putting yourself in nature, you're drinking the right amount of water, you're eating food that feels good to you. Just general things that we know we should be doing that if we're not doing can negatively impact our ability to heal. Now, the reverse engineering of the nervous system can happen through the breath. There are somatic breathwork techniques, and somatic just means relating to the body. Those are an option, but also just connecting with the breath, understanding the breath. The breath is something that happens automatically, but when we take the breath and begin to control the ways in which we're breathing, we're able to control the ways in which our nervous system is reacting. That's how the reverse engineering happens. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be serious. It can just be laying on your back and inhaling and exhaling through your nose. That will put you in a more parasympathetic state. If you're able to fill your belly with air, that'll put you in a parasympathetic state. If you elongate your exhale, double your inhale, parasympathetic state. It doesn't have to be this fancy technique that you learn. It's more of just a way that you can get your body back 
into a space that you can manage. It no longer becomes an overwhelming experience. And my fifth piece of this is simply to accept that this is a process, that healing is a journey, and there's going to be bumps along the road, and there's going to be incredible achievements, and there's going to be times where you feel like nothing has ever happened, and what's the point, and there's no progress or success, and you're going to feel like this whole thing's not worth it. But if you start this journey understanding that it is a journey, it is a process, that as long as you continue, as long as you move one foot in front of the other, you're moving in the right direction. And this is a bonus tip. This is something that you can actively practice in your life now. It's something I have tattooed on my arm, on my wrist, so I can see it every single day. And that is to stay open, to allow experiences that you have in each and every moment that you're present to, to just go through you, to feel them fully in each and every moment, to feel the pain when the pain occurs, and to not put that emotion off for another day, another time, because you know that it's just going to be stored for you to have to work on later. And if we're able to prevent ourselves from causing more potential harm in the future, personally, I find that the healing feels within reach. It feels like something that I'm able to do because I'm no longer putting myself in a position where I have to continue the cycle of healing things that I have held onto. This was a doozy. This episode was very heavy, very intense, but I very much so appreciate you listening. As always, feel free to reach out to me. I am more than willing. I am so excited to talk to you about this if you feel that that would be helpful to you, if you feel that you're related at all. I am so, so open to this. So you can find me on Instagram at the, T-H-E, M-V-M-T dot collective or at Lauren Tramfit. Either of those work. And I'll see you next week.